Good morning, and welcome to the Truth and Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwold Church of Christ. Truth and Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love. If you had the opportunity to start over in life, what would you say? Would you be interested? I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in the world today that if they had the opportunity to begin life anew, they would jump at the chance. There are many, many people in our world today that have been scarred and stained by a life of sin, ashamed of their past, and in many ways feel helpless and hopeless in terms of proceeding forward into the future. I've got some good news for you. Because in Christ, there is the opportunity for a brand new start. What I want to do today is call your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 17. Many years ago, Paul said to the people that lived in Corinth, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Today, as we think about the opportunity for a brand new start in life, I want you to consider some things that I believe will help you evaluate your life and then the opportunity to start over, to begin life anew. Number one, I want to suggest that the new birth affords us a new beginning which would lead to new blessings. So first and foremost, let's just talk about the new birth. You remember the Apostle Paul spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth. And the Bible tells us that those who lived in Corinth were knee-deep in sin. As a matter of fact, the name Corinth became a synonym for ungodly, profligate living debauchery, we might say. When Paul wrote to the church in his first letter, he said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, sodomites, homosexuals. He said, Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But now note, and such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I mentioned just a moment ago that Paul spent 18 months in that city preaching and teaching the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. That's exactly what Paul is saying in his letter to the church. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But note if you would, at one time they had been living in the mock and mire of sin. 
And yet Paul said, such were some of you. That tells me that after hearing the gospel and learning about Christ and the opportunities to begin anew, they made the decision to get on board with the Lord. The new birth. There are a lot of folks in the world today that misunderstand the nature of the new birth. Jesus taught the new birth in his earthly ministry. In John chapter 3, we have a record of Jesus engaged in a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him at night for the purpose of, I think, further investigating Jesus and his work, his identity. And so he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs or miracles which you do except God be with him. Now, you know, the miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his claims of deity. In John chapter 5, verse 36, the Lord said, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, his message, no doubt incomparable. As a matter of fact, Peter would say concerning the teaching of Jesus, that he had the words of life eternal in John chapter 6. But the miracles said something about his identity, about his deity, the fact that he did indeed come from God. When Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher come from God, that was a significant statement from this Jewish man. Jesus then said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. And so, he said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And the Lord then responded by saying, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, number one, to identify the kingdom of God, that would be the church. Now, Jesus is pointing to the coming of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Throughout his ministry, he had talked about the kingdom or the church. You remember John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Christ. And John the Baptist sought to point people in the direction of the Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, it was said of John the Baptist that when he began his ministry, that he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus began his ministry, he echoed the very same message. For the Bible says that the Lord announced, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now bear in mind that the kingdom that both John and Jesus talked about was something that the prophets of old had foretold of. Daniel, for example, saw, said something about the coming of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, Daniel had risen to prominence in the court of the Chaldeans. And serving under Nebuchadnezzar, he interpreted a dream. The king had had a dream, didn't understand the contents of it. Daniel was summoned, and through, through the Spirit of God, he interpreted that dream. And what he saw was four world empires that basically would rise and fall in successive order, beginning with the Babylonian Empire, over which Nebuchadnezzar served as king. Babylon would later give way to the Medes and the Persians, and Daniel would later become prominent in that kingdom. But then the Medes and the Persians would fall to the Grecian Empire, which in turn would yield to the Roman Empire. And so in 
Verse 44, Daniel said, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will not be left to other kingdoms, but it will break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms. And listen to what he said, It shall stand forever. In contrast to the earthly kingdoms that would rise and fall in successive order. You can go back and look at history. History indicates that there have been many kingdoms that have come and gone over the, over the years, over a period of time. And yet this kingdom would stand forever. It was an eternal kingdom. In that same context, Daniel said that he saw a stone cut without hands, that it filled the whole earth. You remember Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah began prophesying some seven centuries before the coming of the Christ. Isaiah, in many ways, pinpointed the coming of the Messiah and his work, the suffering servant. But Isaiah saw the kingdom or the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. And he said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. But note if you would, Isaiah, in talking about this exalted mountain or the kingdom of God, it would be filled with all nations of people. So when Daniel said he saw a stone cut without hands that filled the whole earth, he's talking about the global impact of the kingdom of God. Now that's the very institution that John the Baptist and Jesus began preaching and teaching. In Mark chapter 9 at verse 1, Jesus said on one occasion, Verily I say unto you, there are some of you who stand here that shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. He's talking about the church there. And pointing to Pentecost Day, the city of Jerusalem would be the birthplace of the coming of the kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 16, we have a record of the Lord in Caesarea Philippi. And you remember he had asked the disciples on that occasion, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they responded by saying, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked this very powerful, profound question. But who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord then responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then look at verse 19. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So in verse 18, he uses the terminology of the church, that he would build his church. In verse 19, though, the phraseology, the kingdom of heaven, same institution, one and the same. And I might also add, the church of the kingdom of God was not in any way an afterthought on God's part. There are some today that have the idea that when the Lord came to earth, he was rejected by the Jewish people because he was rejected by them. He failed in his efforts to establish the kingdom or to set up the kingdom. But that's not the case. Isaiah in chapter 53 talked about the fact that the Lord would be rejected by men. He said he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the Lord wasn't caught off guard by those who did not believe in him, but rather God had from the very beginning of time, prior to time beginning, 
had already devised a plan of redemption that included the church and the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, to save from sin. So when the Lord, in John chapter 3, talked about the kingdom, He was talking about the church, okay? How then does a person become a member of the church or the kingdom of God? It's the new birth. Well, what then is the new birth? Well, it's to be baptized into Christ. Well, how do I know that I need to be baptized into Christ? Because God the Father, as you well know, was the originating cause of salvation. Jesus was the sacrificial cause of salvation. The Holy Spirit, the revealing cause of salvation. So we take the Word of God, the Bible, that which has been produced by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture, every Scripture is inspired of God. We're talking about the inspired, inerrant Word of the living God. Peter would later say that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we take the Spirit's message, that is Scripture, and we read, analyze, and conclude what the Lord would have us to do to become a member of the church or the kingdom of God. Now I want to go back to Matthew 16 again for a moment. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus promised to build the church, and he did, he was the founder of the church, and not just the founder, but also the foundation. For Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So the Lord promised to build the church. But in verse 19, he told Peter that he would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven were not just given to Peter exclusively, but rather to all the apostles. Because in chapter 18, verse 18, that's exactly what Matthew records. On Pentecost Day, and here we have the birth of the New Testament church. Jesus promised to build it. He bought it with his blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And we have the birth of the New Testament church recorded by Luke in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Now the thrust of the message that was proclaimed in Jerusalem on that day had to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter, in his sermon, talked about the Lord being coronated as King of Kings in heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he welds all authority. All authority has been given unto him in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. And the Father said, we're to hear him, Matthew 17, verse 5. So Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. And the Bible says in verse 36 that Peter then said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus, which you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, verse 37 informs us that the people who were present on that occasion, they were pricked or cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted of sin. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, listen to what Peter said, and bear in mind that Peter was an inspired apostle, as were the others. They have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had promised them that they would be the recipients of the Holy Spirit. They received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2. In verse 4, the Bible says that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So these are inspired men preaching an inspired message. Jesus had said in John chapter 16 at verse 13, 
that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Pentecost Day, the people are convicted of sin. They want to know what do we need to do to rectify our sinful condition. And won't you listen to what Peter said? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now let's just pause there for a moment or two. They already believed in the Lord. They put him to death. They were instructed to repent of sin. And then they were told to comply with the new birth or to be immersed, to be baptized into Christ. For what reason? Well, so their sins would be remitted, forgiven. You know, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, prior to ascending to heaven, said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. The Lord Jesus placed baptism and belief. Matter of fact, if you look at the text, he placed belief and baptism prior to salvation. Peter, an inspired apostle, places repentance and baptism prior to the remission or forgiveness of sins. And then Saul of Tarsus later is on record as placing baptism prior to the washing away of sins in Acts 22 verse 16. You have inspired men telling the people in the first century that in order to become a part of the kingdom of God or the church, they had to be baptized into Christ. Are you saying then that if I want to be a member of the church or the kingdom of God, that I've got to be baptized into Christ? Exactly. Now, understand, I'm not saying baptism only. No, your baptism is to be preceded by faith in Christ. Jesus said, except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins, John 8, verse 24. You must repent of sin. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. And then to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you're immersed in water. When you do that, the benefits are you contact the blood of Christ. Well, why do I need to be baptized to contact the blood of Christ? Well, if I want to contact the blood of Christ, I've got to go where it was shed. It was shed on Calvary, John 19, 34 and 35. And Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. So when we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ, and then we are added to the body of Christ. That is, we are placed in that divine body that Jesus built and bought with his own blood. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, The Lord added to the church daily, those who were being saved. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at verse 13. By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. What's the one body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. When you're baptized into Christ, you are automatically added to the church of Christ. When I say the church of Christ, I'm talking about the church that belongs to Christ. Why? Because he built it. He bought it. And if he built it and bought it, it would only stand to reason that it belongs to him. The new birth, then, is essential to become a part of the kingdom of God. And as I said a minute ago, the new birth leads to a new beginning, which affords us new blessings. So let's just talk for a moment or two about the new beginning. Listen again to what Paul said. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. The beauty of becoming a child of God enjoying the cleansing power of the blood of Christ is that whatever is in your past, no matter how dark, 
nor dismal your past may be. It is just that. It's in the past. Listen to what the Hebrew writer said, talking about the covenant under which you and I now live today. That is the law of Christ. The Lord said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Boy, that's powerful, isn't it? To think that what God is saying is that when you become one of his children, your past is behind you. It's over. He will never again dredge up the dirt from your past. How many times have you known people, it may be the case, that you've had a conflict with someone in days gone by? And over a period of time, you've sought to reconcile your differences. And it may be that between the two of you, over time, you've reconciled those differences. And you thought, for all intents and purposes, that the past was in the past. Only to later have someone say to you, well, you remember what you said, you remember what you did. Well, they didn't really, they didn't really put it in the past, did they? Look, God doesn't operate like that. No, when God says that he forgives, he forgives. There are really two things that stand out in my mind. Number one, to recognize that God will forgive any sin. He will forgive all sin. Look again at the people in Corinth. The church at Corinth was made up of people that had been living in fornication, adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, sodomy. Some were thieves. Some were covetous. Some were extortioners. Some were revilers. Some were drunkards. But they put all that behind them. They had a brand new start in life. As Paul said, and such were some of you. Past tense. Not present tense. Past tense. Number one, God will forgive your sins. He will forgive all your sins. He will forgive any sin in your life. Number two, not only will God forgive your sins, but he will forget in the sense they'll never be brought up again. You don't have to worry about standing before God one day and God saying, you remember when? No, that's, that's in the past. Now, you know what that says to me? That the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful. It can wash away any stain. The blood of Jesus has the ability to remedy the sin problem of the human family. And listen, sin is a reality. Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's found in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and verses 9 and 10 as well. None righteous, no, not one. I mean, just think about it. We live in a world that's full of sin. We've got people that are living in sin. And John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is the transgression of the law. That is, those who violate the law of God, they're in sin. Now, please do not think for a minute that we are born sinners. We're born into a world of sin, but we are not born a sinner. No, Ezekiel said many years ago, the Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. He would also say in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the soul that sins shall surely die. Sin is a transgression of the law. Sin means to miss the mark. Now, having said that, number one, we talk about the new birth. 
Number two, the new beginning. That brand new start. But then number three, the new blessings. I want you to say something right now very quickly. One of the greatest reasons why I believe people ought to live the Christian life and one of the reasons why I believe it is the best life is because it is the blessed life. Every blessing known to man, spiritually speaking, is found in one place. That's Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, is found about 35 times in the book of Ephesians, which would say to all of us, to be in Christ is to be in a very special place. Well, why? Because that's where all the spiritual blessings reside. When you obey the gospel, that is, when you submit to the teaching of the Lord, you believe that He's the Son of God, you repent of your sins, confess His name, bear with Him in baptism, then first and foremost to know that you enjoy pardon. We've been talking about forgiveness. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Aren't you grateful for the marvelous, matchless grace of God? In Ephesians 2 at verse 4, Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. God's grace is located in Christ, just as salvation is located in Christ. That's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and also in verse 2. How do we get into Christ? We're baptized into Christ. When we do that, we enjoy pardon. Number two. We enjoy peace, peace with God. Isaiah said many years ago, there is no peace for the wicked, says my God. The guilt, the shame, the stain of sin robs people from peace. And yet Paul said in Romans chapter 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I would also add, we not only enjoy peace with God, but we enjoy the peace of God. In Philippians chapter For the Bible says, In nothing be anxious, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Did you take note of that? Paul said, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding. To enjoy that inward peace that's not affected by what's going on in the world around us, but there is this inward peace and joy that a Christian has. And then, what about the privilege of prayer? To know that we have the opportunity to bow in the presence of God, to make our wants and wishes known to Him. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 7, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. The Hebrew writer would say that we are to draw boldly under the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is one of the great allies that we have in Christ. And Peter would say this, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. Now there are people in our world today that are 
high-ranking dignitaries. Some are in positions of great power in the business world. Well, you may or may not have access to those people, but I can tell you this, as a child of God, you have access to the very throne of God, to the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And then let me just close by saying this. As a Christian, that new birth that brings the new beginning and new blessings, you have the presence of God in your life. Here's what the Bible says, on behalf of God, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And then when we come to the end of life here on planet earth, as David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. I hope and pray that if you haven't availed yourself of that brand new start, that you'll do so and do it today. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. We would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class, is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m. Please visit our website, www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org.